You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this afternoon will be from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 27. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, for whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have continued, or they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son knows the Father also. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus clearly. We pray that you would help us by your word and through the power of your spirit to help us to even further individually and as a church to abide in him. We pray these things for his sake and for our own comfort and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all on this earlier afternoon. Sun still in the stained glass windows. Hey, we left here a, a little bit late or uh, last week, and it was still the sunlight was still poking through uh, as we were leaving last week. Uh, it gave me hope. Uh, the days are getting longer, uh, and these days are getting warmer. So uh, we've been. If you're new joining us here, uh, if did I just already say? My name is Nathan. If I didn't, I'll say it again. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. We've been spending the last uh, three weeks now in the book of First John, this short little letter that the Apostle John wrote, uh, and it's been good for my heart and soul. I hope it has been for you as well. Uh, this is a letter that my family has thought through and about uh, for a, a long while. Several years ago at dinner, we were talking, I think, about this actual text uh, that Stephen just read from, and we were talking about 
uh, worldliness and the love of money and the love of other things. And we, we started thinking and talking about Samson and Delilah and the things that they loved more than God. Uh, Samson loved Delilah more than himself. Delilah loved money, uh, 1,100 pieces of silver from the Philistines. So we talked about this tendency to have, uh, that we have to love and to put things of the world over and against our love for God. And I asked one of my kids uh, what they were tempted to love more than God. And one of them said, I love frozen yogurt more than God. And then another one said, I love spaghetti more than God. And I was like, well, okay, okay. This thing is really uh, spiraling out of control. Uh, But uh, point taken, they were very small children, but they were already convinced of an inclination that I think we all have in our heart. That things of this world, perhaps even food, uh, might be more satisfying than the creator of the universe who has given us all of these gifts, who has given us the very bread from heaven that would satisfy us eternally, that the one who has sent his very son to die on our behalf. Well, we have thought a little bit about the world in 1 John, uh, but tonight we're going to think very clearly and more specifically about worldliness. We're going to see John tell us to not love the things of the world. So what does that mean, that we should not love frozen yogurt or spaghetti? We'll see. So we're going to look at this text in uh, three parts. First of all, just what is worldliness, and then the poison of worldliness, and then the antidote, the antidote of worldliness. So what is worldliness? In verses 15 through 17, John says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So after spending a chapter and a half in thinking about Jesus, about his life and his death and the effects of the gospel in our lives, John finally offers the very first imperative of this entire letter, the very first command. There's been lots of like conditional statements, like if this is true, then this is true, and if this is true, then this is true. But this is the very first command that John gives us. John includes far fewer commands than any of the other gospel writers, uh, than Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and there are very few commands in this letter, in fact. So when he gives one, Our ears ought to perk up, our hearts and our souls ought to perk up because it is likely very important. So what is the imperative? What is the command that John tells us to pay special attention to in this text? Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now before we get into what worldliness is, let's try first to think about what worldliness isn't. Many have used this passage throughout the centuries Uh, to try to perhaps remove themselves or isolate themselves from any like corrupting influences of the world. So we might say even uh, in past centuries past equivalents of never like watch secular movies or read secular books or listen to secular music. Uh, Don't go to the mall, kids. Uh, There's only Satan there. Uh, In the 90s, there was this thing, I know if you're like a college student now, this will will blow your mind. Get a load of this. In the 90s, there was this thing called the Shepherd's Guide. Any old timers out there uh, remember this thing? It It was like a newspaper that you could get at Christian bookstores, and if you wanted a Christian plumber or a Christian electrician 
or whatever, uh, they were all listed here so that you could only interact with other Christians. Now, I think it came from a good place. Hopefully these guys or these workers or whatever they were, these men or women were doing for their employment, you could trust them and their integrity. I think that was the, the motive of this thing, but it kind of turned into like this insular Christians only interacting with other Christians. So maybe loving, not loving the things of the world is actually not hanging out with or not being with or being influenced by any other unbeliever in the world. And so, is this wrong? Is it wrong to, in past centuries, uh, perhaps as Christians moved into like a monastic movement, to like only hang, it, hang out with uh, other Christians and try to insulate yourself from the world? After all, John says not to love the world or the things of the world. He says, if anyone loves the, thing of the things of the world, movies, music, books, whatever it might be, politics, then the love of the Father is not in him. That's what John says, right? Well, while people who live this way, and sometimes we ourselves can think this way, I think the intention might be well-meaning. And by the way, those who are very committed to that kind of thing are most likely trying to take the word of God very seriously and build their lives around God's word rather than just sprinkle the Bible on top of their already uh, had lives. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the kind of lifestyle that John is advocating for here. After all, uh, we've talked about uh, how Jesus has made, made himself a reputation that his enemies might even have called him a drunkard, a glutton, a friend of sinners, a ta- friend of tax collectors. It seems like, very much so, that Jesus loved the world. He loved many of the pleasures of this world, and he loved the people of this world, so much so that his enemies uh, forced upon him, trying to uh, accuse him of this kind of reputation, of loving the world. In Psalm 24, David says, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, meaning everything that God has created is the things that we experience. Now, of course, those things can be corrupted, but Paul quotes from that verse in Psalm 24 in 1 Corinthians 10, explaining that it's actually okay for you, O Christian, to eat all kinds of meat, even those that were unbeknownst to you, sacrificed to idols. Everything in this world, God has created. Indeed, this reminds us of the goodness of creation. We were created to enjoy that which God created. The book of Ecclesiastes is helpful for us here in understanding that God gives gifts so that we might actually enjoy the giver. The gifts aren't necessarily things that we must always just deprive ourselves of, but are actually things that we can, are, these, are, these are helpful tools for our increasing love and thankfulness and gratitude for this gift giver. So verse 15 does not command us to not enjoy creation. Nor in verse 16, where John says that all that is in the world is not from the Father. Or in verse 17, where he says the world is passing away along with its desires. John is not saying, well, this whole thing is going to hell, everyone. So... Let's just remove ourselves and just wait for Jesus to come back. No, the world brings glory to God. And one way that we enjoy God is to enjoy the things that he has created. So, like we thought about then, two weeks ago, the world, whenever John uses this word, world, in 1 John and indeed in his gospel account, the world nearly always means the kingdom of this world. The kingdom that stands in rebellious opposition to that of the kingdom of God. 
And yet this very world is the world that God himself has entered to save and to redeem. John 3, for God so loved the world. God so loved the world. Think about how that might be and help us interpret when John says here, do not love the things of the world. So if that's the world that John is talking about when he's now teaching about worldliness, it helps us to now understand verse 15 as do not love the things of the world that are in opposition to God and against his kingdom. Or perhaps even more specifically, do not set your affection, not don't care for in empathy and compassion, for God so loved the world in that way, in redeeming love, but do not set your affection on things that are in opposition to God and to his kingdom. Meaning, because, chapter 1, God is light, he is the creator from the, from the beginning, because we are miserable sinners, and yet he has loved us so much to pour out his light on his son so that we might become sons and daughters. Chapter 2, verse 1, because when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, chapter 1, 9. Because he has not only unblinded our eyes, but he has also transferred us to a new kingdom. Well, because all that's true, then he is worthy of our highest affections. He is worthy of our highest love, of our highest worship. And yet, every moment of every day, we are tempted towards setting our affection on things other than God. Every moment, we are making choices. It's a good song for us to sing earlier. Yes, I will. It's a good song to, yes, God comes to us in redeeming, uh, sacrificial grace and love. But then we respond and saying, yes, I will worship you. I will love you over other things. I will love and worship the eternal and glorious God who has created me and who has saved me. Or perhaps we choose the other end of that bargain sometimes, often. I will worship temporary things that God has created which have no ability to save me. Not loving the gifts as a way to enjoy and love the gift giver, but loving the gifts in a way that eclipses the gift giver. I am unable to see and worship God as I love and worship this thing instead. If you love yourself and the things more than God himself, John says, you might not actually love the Father. Verse 15, the love of or the love for the Father is not in that person. It's not in you. So if you're sitting there wondering, well, is this me? Am I loving the things of the world over and against, eclipsing the love of God? Do I not have the love of God? I like the world. I enjoy the things of the world. I like watching movies that are made by people who are in rebellion against God. Does that mean that I am actually loving the world more than God himself? Well, John helps us understand a little bit more specifically what he's talking about. What does love for the world or worldliness actually look like? Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. This is worldliness. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride in possessions. I think John is probably riffing on Genesis 3 here. Adam and Eve playing or, uh, at, at, the, at the tree. There is 
flesh, eyes, pride, all of these things are just wrapped up in our good description of worldly rejection of God. So let's think through these things more carefully, these three, these three categories. First, the desires of the flesh. I think these things might be uh, things that we naturally long for. As people who are fallen sinners, these are the things that we naturally crave. We've talked over and over throughout the years about these false idols, things that we think that will be ultimately satisfying. Good things that we make into God things. Money, approval, spouses or children, self-appearance, images of attractive people, and on and on and on. When we are tempted to worship created things rather than the creator, we are living worldly lives. We are indulging worldly desires, lives in rebellion against the king and his kingdom. I've shared this several times throughout the years, but C.S. Lewis brilliantly encapsulates all of this, I think, by saying that human history is the long and terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. If we could just look back over the millennia, that's the story of human, of humanity. It's long, it's terrible, it repeats itself over and over and over again of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. The desires of the flesh, things other than God that we think will give us ultimate happiness, security, identity. This is the first aspect of worldliness, but not all. The second is the desires of the eyes. And perhaps many of you might have immediately started thinking about like thinking lustfully about other people. Either people you know, or on a magazine cover, or on TV, or on the internet. And while that is certainly in play here, it is a serious component of worldliness that robs our love for God, this is not all that John is warning against. The desires of the eyes are similar to the desires of the flesh. Remember those desires that just come naturally, that uh, are suggesting to us things that we're craving. But the desires of the eyes are things that Perhaps we weren't necessarily craving on our own, but then we see and then we can't stop being fixated on. Have you ever seen like a commercial for something or like a targeted ad on Instagram of something that you didn't know existed and then you're like, I don't know how I could live my life possibly one more day without this thing. I didn't know it existed three minutes ago, but now I must have it. I want that. (laughs) Uh, The desires or lusts of the eyes may or may not be over things in and of themselves that are sinful. But then when we see and become so fixated on those things, those desires now become sinful. Those things that we even might see and be persuaded and convinced of that that is right. That way of living or thinking in the world is right. Just think about the potentially devastating effects that social media has had on us, not just on the targeted social media ads, but in convincing us that it is perhaps good or right to comment or enter into every potential argument that exists in humanity. If there's an argument out there, I must insert myself into it. That's not good. Social media and perhaps even cable news that persuades us that it is actually good to gossip. It is actually good and right to slander other people. As long as those people are in the wrong and my position is in the right, then any uh, of the ends justify the means. And so one author so clearly sums this up by saying that worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness seems strange. That's a great definition for worldliness. 
whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. That's worldliness. Without discernment, we become like the world around us. Now, I'm all about cultural engagement, but I think we've gotten very close as 21st century American Christians in engaging any or all forms of culture as an excuse to kind of just do whatever we want. Are there TV shows that you probably should not watch because it is simply not appropriate for a Christian to watch that show? I think the answer is yes. I'm not going to tell you which ones they are. I think we just need to grow in our consciences, grow in our ability to discern what is wise and what is actually cultivating greater love for God. Are there books that you say, yes, everyone at work has read that book and it might make it worthwhile for me to be able to enter into conversations with, but I'm not going to read it because I'm a Christian. Is the honor of Christ and love for neighbor and perhaps even helping you decide what to wear or language you use or jokes that you make? If there is nothing or very little in the world that we say no to as Christians, it is very likely that we are living worldly lives. Now, don't hear me wrong here. I'm not saying that we should go live monastic lives, keeping ourselves from ever being corrupted by the world or something like that. But has the temperature of the culture around us perhaps boiled away our consciences without us even knowing it? The problem with thinking that a monastic life will save us, will keep us from being corrupted by the world, is that it is perhaps just saying that all the bad is just out there while it ignores the bad that is still in here. Keeping ourselves just hanging out with Christians isn't going to renovate what's happening in here. And yet, external things can actually begin to influence us, can evaporate our consciences. And so in thinking about worldliness, another author observes and warns us in this way. He says, imagine I take a blind test in which my task is to identify the true and genuine follower of Jesus Christ. My choices are an unregenerate individual. Unregenerate means just like someone who has not been born again. An unregenerate individual and you. I'm given two reports detailing conversations, internet activity, manner of dress, playlists, TV and streaming habits, hobbies, leisure time, financial transactions, thoughts, passions, and dreams. The question is, would I be able to tell you apart? Would I discern a difference between you and your unconverted neighbor, coworker, classmate, or friend? Have the lines between Christianity and worldly conduct in your life become so indistinguishable that there really is no difference at all? Now, again, we are not saved by our godly habits. We are not saved by our streaming habits or our spending habits or whatever those things may be. But remember what we talked about last week. When we come to Christ, when he brings us from death to life, there is actually death to life. It's not just our thoughts about Jesus have changed. He does something spiritual. There is change. The Christian life is a life of change. And so if the things that we look on or desire or take is no different than the world around us, then John warns us that it is very likely that we are not loving God. Which gets us right into this third test of worldliness, and that is pride and possessions. What is the most important thing you own? What is the thing that you own that you are most proud of? Everybody have have that in your mind? 
would you be willing to give it away? That's hard. If not, why not? Most likely because you think that thing is so important. That thing gives you security. That thing gives you identity. So it's hard to think about that thing not being yours. We know of a couple who, when the day they bought a very nice vehicle, they thanked God for it. What a good gift that God had given. And then that day, as pretty, a few minutes after they signed on the title, they prayed that God would make them into a people who would very easily give it away on a moment's notice. We as Americans are driven by stuff and the acquisition of more stuff. So much stuff that we have to pay someone to store our stuff that we no longer think about or care about, but we can't give it away. And the danger that we have as Americans of having nearly all of our needs met overwhelmingly is that we come under this false illusion that we are self-made and that we are self-sustaining. We are the reason that we have all this awesome stuff and we are the reason that we will keep all of this awesome stuff. This is worldly. This is pride in possessions. If the stuff that God has given you or the stuff that God has not given you but that you want If that's what you are setting your affection on more than God himself, it's likely that the love of God is not in you. Or in the the words of Jesus, you cannot love God and money. And so John caps this introduction into worldliness with a very logical conclusion in verse 17. He says, listen, you want to know why all this stuff is, why all of this worldliness is so dumb? The world's passing away. Along with its desires, But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The worldview of the Christian, the one who walks in the light, the one who is ongoingly confessing his or her sin, the one who is trusting in the blood of Jesus and sharing in the divine life is one that realizes that this world is not my home. We are living between two worlds, between two ages, between two kingdoms, living in this world happily and thankfully, but not of this world because it is not my home. We are sojourners. The more we understand this, the more we will not be so enamored, so distracted by the things of this world. And so as Spurgeon once wisely said, the Christian is the most contented man in the world, but he is the least contented with the world. He is like a traveler in an inn, perfectly satisfied with the inn and its accommodation, considering it as an inn but putting quite out of all consideration the idea of making it his home. And so what is the effect? What is the consequence of not thinking in this way? Of not having this right view? What is the consequence of worldliness? When we live worldly lives with worldly hearts and worldly desires, what is the consequence of that? Verse 18. Secondly now, the poison of worldliness. Children, It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. 
Now, sorry to disappoint everyone here, but we're not going to spend a ton of time on like the Antichrist and end times and stuff. Uh, that'll come when we preach through other books, uh, maybe even Daniel later on in this year. Uh, but all he is saying when he's talking about Antichrist and Antichrist is people who are anti-Christ, who are preaching and denying Christ. He will say it later that, you, that someone is Antichrist if he is denying Jesus and denying the Father, that Jesus is the God-man denying Christ and his gospel. But what does any of that have to do with worldliness? Well, it appears the Ephesian church, whom John is likely writing this letter to, though we're not sure, had people denying that Jesus was the God-man, denying the teaching of the apostles about Jesus. And so, upon hearing this new teaching that was against or anti Christ or anti the gospel, these people then eventually left the church. They left their profession of faith that they had heard from the beginning, probably with considerable conflict or doubting from the church that remained. And so the Ephesians, or whomever they were, were perhaps writing a letter to John, and they said, like, I, we don't understand. I, we don't understand what happened. They, for years, were walking with us, were praying with us, were worshiping with us, and then they just left. How do we think about all of those years together? And I thought you said, we've got your gospel account, John, and I thought you said that Jesus said in John 6 that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And I thought you said, John, in John 10, that Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them from my hand. What the heck? What about these people who are professing faith in Jesus and then stop? It sure looks like these guys, our dear friends, who we thought were our brothers and sisters in Christ, got plucked from Jesus' hand. They were deceived by these false teachers, these antichrists. So John says about these people who denied his teaching and left the church, he says in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John is saying, if you leave Christ, you were never his in the first place. Those whom he calls, he will not lose. If you deny the truth about Jesus, you do not have the Father. And so here's the point about worldliness. It appears from the flow of John's argument that these guys who left, left because of love for the world. A love of the world that was greater or might have eclipsed altogether their love for God. More than their love of God's word revealed through Jesus and his apostles. There's a little known guy in the New Testament that perhaps this might remind us of. There's a guy named Demas. Demas was a close companion and friend of Paul. He was planting churches with Paul. He was sharing the gospel ongoingly and regularly. In Paul's introductions to the letters to the Colossians and to Philemon that Aaron preached through a few months ago, Paul says in the intros of those two letters that Paul says, or he says that Demas gives his greetings. Demas is with him when he's writing books of the Bible. But what happened to Demas? And why aren't we naming our kids Demas? In a little note at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul writes this. He says, Demas in love with the present world, has deserted me. Now, we don't have any more backstory or context than that, but my guess is 
that Jesus or that Demas's desertion of Paul, his love for the world, didn't just happen overnight. We don't know exactly what of this present world that Demas was in love with, whether it was money or fame or women or acceptance or comfort. Maybe he got tired of being beaten, being jailed. It's too hard. We don't have any idea, but it looks like slowly, whatever it was, the allure of these things convinced him that being with Paul, that suffering for the sake of the gospel just was not worth it any longer. Jesus is just not worth it any longer. And so you want to hear something scary. I pray what I'm about to say couldn't be any further from the truth. But it's possible, perhaps more than possible, that one, two, three, several of us in this room who are professing Christ today, just like Demas did for years with Paul, but for the love of this present world, the love of the world that perhaps becomes so strong, so alluring, so convincing, that this love of the world might extinguish our love for Christ altogether. Worldliness is a very slow-acting poison. Like a sleeping potion or something that takes time, only it doesn't just bring sleep, it brings death. It slowly and methodically kills your love for God, for his word, for the gospel altogether. And so it's been said that today the greatest challenge facing American evangelicals, that's us, Today, the greatest challenge facing American evangelicals is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. Your challenge, our challenge, is not persecution. Our challenge is seduction. The world has so much influence on us that slowly we begin to make compromises. Slow compromises that we don't even realize we're making. On what, we wa- what we watch, what we listen to, how we spend our free time, our internet activity, our political hopes, what we're seeking after, that pretty soon we do not look different from the world at all. That there really is no difference at all from us and the unbelieving world, just that we go to church on Sundays or we listen to different kinds of music, but also we still have the same hopes as our unbelieving friends. And then when the cost of following Christ is a giving up of all those things, we decide it isn't worth it. If we're going to let go of one of those things, Jesus or this really hard thing in my life, my sexuality, my hopes, my dreams, my political hopes, whatever it is, we get to the point where we let go of him. It's harder. God help us. The Christian life is one of ongoing repentance. Ongoing. For the rest of our life. Doesn't mean that we become a Christian anew every single day, but that we are ongoingly turning, turning back to him. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And here's what the gospel does. Here's what the gospel does to this slow-acting poison. It begins to release our grip on these things and fix both of our hands more firmly on him. And this is the antidote of worldliness. Thirdly, if worldliness is a slow-acting poison, here is the antidote, verses 24 and 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. 
If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. The antidote of worldliness is abiding, living, dwelling, just resting in the word of God, abiding in Christ, abiding in life in God. What the Ephesians heard from the beginning was the apostolic teaching, the teaching from the apostles and the eyewitnesses, which was what? What is the teaching of the apostles? That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That Jesus Christ, of, uh, the, the carpenter from Nazareth, was the Christ, the anointed one of God, the God-man. He has lived, and he has died, and he has been raised to new life, that you might be raised to new life with him. And John is saying that that is enough. That teaching God's word, the Bible that then comes to us is enough. You don't need to be taught something new. Saying you have it. This is what John is saying. You don't need something new. You have what you need. It's just the same old gospel of grace. The gospel is not kindergarten that you then graduate on to the serious stuff, to deeper and more richer theology. The gospel is kindergarten and it is a PhD program at the same time. It's exactly what we said a couple of weeks ago, that the gospel is both shallow enough for a small toddler to splash around in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in at the exact same time. This is what we need and what we have heard from the beginning and what we will need for the rest of our lives to keep us, to abide in him. While we undoubtedly can grow in our theological knowledge of God, John says, you have the spirit. You have the Holy One. You have all that you need for life and godliness. So just don't depart. Pitch a tent in this life with the triune God, now lived out in the community of his church, and don't leave. Just stay here, not stay in this building, but stay with God's people, abiding in his word, abiding in ongoing life and love of Jesus every day. Just don't leave that, and he will keep you to the end. You will not choose the world over him. And so as you abide in the gospel of grace, as you live and dwell in Jesus, he will abide in you. Deepening your communion with Jesus and then your union with Jesus will become a thing that is, gives you much more confidence, much more assurance, much more security. As we grow in our communion with him, then we are more assured of our union with him. You will not leave him for the things of this world. You will not be plucked from his hand. You will be old and gray and on your deathbed still trusting him as your identity and your place of safest security. This sermon has become somewhat of like a greatest hits of my favorite quotes. Uh, But the Puritan Thomas Goodwin on his deathbed said this. I don't know how many times I've shared this, but I'm gonna keep doing it. He says, as he's dying, last words, everyone. Here's his last words. And I'm going to the three persons with whom I have had communion. They have taken me, I have not taken them. I could not have imagined that I should ever have such a measure of faith in this hour, but Christ cannot love me more than he does. I think I cannot love Christ better than I do. I am swallowed up with God, dead. Swallowed up into the life of the eternal triune God for eternity. May it be that we might say on our deathbed, Christ, 
God cannot love me more than he does, I think that I cannot love him any better than I do. Might that be something that we say with full conviction? How do you get to this point? How do you get to that point where you know that Christ cannot love you any more than he does and where you think that you cannot love him any better than you do, that you are confident of being swallowed up in God by a lifetime of deep friendship with God? Remember what we talked about a few weeks ago? This is the whole point of this whole letter, fellowship with God, that you might know him, not know about him, but know him deeply. Are you abiding in his word? Are you abiding in the Bible? Do you know it? We are not just people who know the Bible, but live the Bible. Do you understand how God has unfolded his saving plan and is wrapping you up into that great plan? Not only intellectually knowing facts, but to the the truths of the gospel that you are raised to new life, that you are a beloved son and daughter of God, do those truths actually play out into your decisions, to your actions, so that you are convinced they are true? Convinced of God's love for you. Because knowing Jesus can be simple, but the world makes wanting him really difficult. The world makes wanting Christ really, really difficult. From our own flesh, from desires of the eyes, internal, external, all these things make wanting Jesus really hard. And yet, his burden is easy, his yoke is light. He says, come to me, and he will give you rest. Do you want him? To want Christ, you must not want the world. You must not want your sin. And you know what? Like, a a holy church... H-O-L-Y, a holy church, a church that is not worldly, is perhaps one of the most persuasive tools of evangelism that exists. Not in like a holier-than-thou kind of we're so righteous and you're so bad kind of way. I think too often, though, that we can think if we looked just a bit more like the world, then the world would be more likely to believe us. If we spoke like them, if we joked like them, if we watched all the same TV shows and listened to all the same music, they'll see that, hey, Christians can be cool too. And again, you all know that I really like TV shows and music made by people who are not Christians. And we can thank God for his common grace in a lot of that. But what is it that we are communicating to an unbelieving world and perhaps to ourselves And we're saying, hey, Christians can be just like you. What we might implicitly be suggesting is you get to keep your awesome American life and just sprinkle on a little Jesus on top. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is about change, is about kingdom transfer, about being satisfied in Christ. This is not the way of the cross, of just sprinkling on a little Jesus. Jesus tells us that following him while it is free and while it is easy and while it is light, actually requires self-denial. For the sake of Christ, have there actually been desires, possessions, actions, words that you have given up or are trying to give up? The way of the cross is that of denying your fleshly and worldly desires so that you might actually have him. 
The way of the cross is actually about self-denial and not self-actualization. But as Jesus says that whoever loses his life for his sake will find it. Self-denial is the doorway to self-actualization. The life and the person that God has created you to be. Living in the light. Living in secure, welcoming love. So self-denial is not the way into the gospel. Rejecting the world is, not in, is the way into acceptance. There is no amount of anti-worldly living that will make you acceptable before God. But because of what God has done in us, by his spirit, through his grace, because of you, the faith that you might have in his promises, denying our flesh, grabbing more onto Jesus' flesh, now risen and glorified forever, ought to become the normative pattern of our lives, repentance and faith. And so this is one reason why we come weekly to this table. We are hopeful that this whole service, every single week, over a few decades in your life, coming to this table individually and together over a few decades in your life will cut grooves of repentance and faith into your soul of ongoingly coming to feast on Jesus, to release our grip on the things of this world and to hold tightly to him, to cut grooves of our fellowship with one another, that we come communally, we come together, that we are a people abiding in his word, not individuals abiding in his word, not individuals abiding in the gospel of grace, but a people together, communally abiding in him, having not gone out from one another, but pitch in our tent every single week for the rest of our lives, perhaps even right here at the foot of the cross, having not gone out from him, but trusting that he will keep us to the end. Abide in him, and he will abide in you. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you have shown us clearly this world that we live in, that you have indeed created all things to bring you glory and that we can enjoy this world, but help us, we pray, to enjoy the things of this world as gifts, not as gods. Help us to use and understand this world as a way that brings more worship from our hearts, more love for you and not less. Help us, give us wisdom, give us discernment, cultivate and strengthen our consciences so that we can be aware of the things that might be slowly poisoning our love for you. We can be so naive, so blind, so dumb. So give us wisdom, we pray. Help us to be a wise church, a wise people who can love each other well as we love you well. Father, we are thankful that you have loved this world, that you have loved us, that you have brought us life. And for those of us who are trusting in the blood of Christ ongoingly, that you will keep us to the end. We're so thankful. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.